to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is a very special Talking Space episode 716 for the week of Monday, December 7th, 2015. I don't think we should number this episode 716. I think we should number it 084. Oh wait, something else has that number, and we'll talk about that pretty much the rest of the episode. But joining me for this episode, I am Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me are all of us who are at the 084 launch attempts, at least. And that includes Gene McCulloch. Welcome, Gene. Thanks, Sawyer. Um, what's left of me, anyway, it's, it was an exhausting seven days, but wow, I can't wait to go ahead and share the story. And we will certainly get to it, and welcome as well, Mark Raderman. Nothing like a trip to Kennedy Space Center on a rocket launch to perk you up, eh? Hey, you're not kidding, indeed. That's right, the guys of Talking Space, Mark, Gene, and myself, were at the Kennedy Space Center this past week to cover the scheduled launch of OA-4, which is the Orbital ATK Cygnus resupply mission to the International Space Station, launched aboard an Atlas V rocket from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station at Launch Complex 41. Now, launch was originally scheduled for this past Thursday, December 3rd. It was then pushed to the 4th. They then skipped the launch attempt on the 5th, and it successfully launched on Sunday, December 6th, just shy of 4.45 p.m. Eastern Time, or just shy of 21.45 GMT. And that Cygnus is now on its way to the International Space Station. And by the time this episode comes out, the Cygnus should be grappled and berthed to the International Space Station. Now, it was an amazing event. We've got so much audio and sound and interviews from the event. But um, let's talk about the launch itself first. Right, Gene? Yeah, first off, none of us were there, actually, unfortunately. Very true. And, you know, again, the, the clock runs out on, on us, you know, due to personal and other commitments. And so I think I was sort of last man standing over there for the Saturday attempt. They scrubbed on that. In fact, I, I had an opportunity to uh, talk with NASA PAO about that. And uh, I asked if it was indeed the wind. And they, they said, yeah, it was the wind again. And I thought, well, you know, well, gee, was there a little bit of uh, possibility that maybe they wanted to rest the crews a little bit? You know, the, the launch team, the, the uh, launch controllers, they've been going at it for you know, at least twice. I mean, Wednesday, the actual day of the launch was very rainy, windy. Uh, I was really, really sh- shocked to learn that they were actually going to go for it and try it anyway. And uh, we all, Sawyer, you and I, we kind of broke camp, if you will. Correction, uh, Thursday. Thursday, yeah. Th- th- thank you, Sawyer. Things <laughs> went, went like a, you know, things were a blur down there. I know. It, it was an amazing <laughs> launch event, yeah. that's for sure. And so much happened in, I think it was the course of three days that we were there covering it. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you and I, you know, we went our separate ways on that Thursday launch attempt, and you know, the the, the weather wasn't really all that favorable for for it. It was raining. It was it was windy the whole bit. I was up on the vehicle assembly building. It was the first time I had ever been up on the observation deck up there, and just the vastness of that was just absolutely amazing. Even with the lousy weather up there, it was still just a stunningly beautiful vista from up there. But it was very rainy, very windy, and it just kind of you know, bit through everything. I actually had to buy a windbreaker beforehand and uh, have a sweater on underneath. Cause, you know, I, w- I was set up for Florida, and, and it just the weather was more set up for New Jersey, if you will. But we went to the bitter end on Thursday to the last point on the launch window. The Atlas V, because of how powerful it is, actually increased the launch window for this particular flight. Unfortunately, we just couldn't get it on Thursday. Uh, Mother Nature bit us. We tried again on Friday, the same result. It was a beautiful day Friday, but the winds, the ground winds, were just really getting to us. We had a hold three times. We went to the absolute end of the launch window and you have to give the United Launch Alliance launch teams a wonderful tip of the hat. They really went to the bitter end before they had to pull the plug. And then, well, Saturday, they didn't even try. It was just a better point of valor, I guess, and they didn't even do call the stations, I don't think. Uh, They just said, you know, guys, let's sit back and punt. It looks like an instant replay of Friday. Why don't we just rest up, rest our team, lick our wounds, and try for Sunday. And uh, lo and behold, right within the window, right on time, the Swan took flight on Sunday. This again was a return to flight mission after when it occurred over at Wallops Island on October 28th, 2014, when we lost the original Orb 3 flight. This was, uh, the the Orb 3 uh, mission was named after uh, Deke Slayton, and they just carried that name over to this particular mission. So the Deke Slayton 2 reached for space also. Uh, So Deke is sort of uh, back in space, if you will, although virtually. And it's a nice, fine salute to the man who had an interesting career. And actually, I believe had a point in actually getting that launch pad over at Wallops Island started. I think he had a business that was also trying to, to get into, quote, commercial space and during the uh, uh, the early 90s, but it just it, it just did not pan out. But as far as the launch itself, we finally got that off and uh, have a little bit of a clip on what that sounded like, so we'll go ahead and we'll play that now. Status check. Go Alice. Go Centaur. Go OA4. 20. T-minus 15 seconds. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Liftoff. On the shoulders of Atlas, the SS Deke Slayton II orbital ATK Cygnus spacecraft soars toward the International Space Station. Listening to Marty Malinowski. Twenty one eighty pump speeds under pressure are a band for Senate Mark. Moderates continue to look now.
So again, a successful launch for United Launch Alliance. This, I believe, was the last launch for 2015. They averaged, I think, one launch a month this year. Uh, not bad. And all of them going perfect under the Atlas V. This was also, I believe, the 30th time they used the Atlas 401 configuration. Well, I'm going to let ULA's Vern Thorpe kind of explain what all of that means and, and some of the details on that. OA-4 will be ULA's 12th and final launch of 2015. This will also be the 103rd launch uh, that ULA has performed since uh, ULA formed in December of uh, 2006. In fact, uh, yesterday was uh, ULA's ninth anniversary. Uh, this will also be the 60th Atlas V rocket that has launched. And we will be using the Atlas 401 configuration that many of you are familiar with. We're going to use our longest of our three uh, four-meter payload fairing lengths for this mission. Uh, we won't have any solid rocket boosters. In fact, the, the model in front of me is the uh, configuration that we'll be flying tomorrow. And uh, we started building the uh, actual hardware for this vehicle about two years ago in our Decatur, Alabama plant. So you may have noticed that this is a very short flight profile compared to what we usually fly. We'll be separating the Cygnus module into its requir required orbit 21 minutes after T0. So if you order a pizza right at T0, we're probably going to have the module in orbit before the pizza arrives. <laughs> Depends how, you know, that doesn't count if you're right next door to the pizza shop. So again, if we launch again on Atlas, and we will again in March of 2016, if you want to do an experiment, Order a pizza at T0, and uh, it should be ready by the time OA6 reaches orbit. So, uh, I, again, I, I thought that was an interesting analog, and I believe, Sawyer, you can check me, that analog was used a lot. Yeah, and it made me hungry every time, too, but uh, <laughs> that is an abnormally short window, pretty much, to get everything in order. You know, basically 21 minutes to get off the ground and into a parking orbit, Normally, you're talking sometimes closer to 30, 40 minutes, even an hour. That was amazing that in 21 minutes, you know, the question someone else asked is, um, if it takes longer than 21 minutes, is your sickness free? <laughs> That's something you'll have to take up with Orbital ATK, I guess. Um, to um, to kind of put the, the spacecraft into some sort of perspective here, 
it's about the new enhanced Cygnus that they're flying. This is not your father's Cygnus here that they're using. It's a little bit bigger of a spacecraft than the Orb 3 mission was. It's about 20 feet tall. That's about as tall as an adult giraffe. Uh, this is totally when the vehicle is assembled because it comes in two parts. One, an instrumentation module that can controls the propulsion and all of the avionics on board Cygnus. And, of course, the pressurized cargo module up front. That has its heritage all the way back to the uh, multipurpose logistics modules that were built for the space shuttle. It weighs about the size of a one large SUV, about 7,774 pounds. And uh, it takes about three days on average to rendezvous with the International Space Station. I, I remember, and I'm trying to, I'm dusting off my brain here a little bit. And I remember from eons ago, and I believe it was, it was either during Orb 1 or Orb 2, where a question was asked about the six-hour profile and if they can do something like that, because I believe the progress missions were also doing the same thing. And I believe, uh, and I'm trying to remember, uh, Frank Culbertson said that's something that they are trying to, to look at. And I, I need to follow up with Frank on that one. So I, I may go ahead and ask Orbital ATK. PAO to kind of find out if they're still working on that mission profile. But overall, everything so far is going well on day two of the flight. And, and of course, uh, Grapple, the International Space Station, is due uh, Wednesday as we record this. And so if you can check me on this, I believe Grapple is expected around 6.10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesday. I think Chell Lindgren is going to be on, at the controls. Uh, they are going to be using the uh, space station's uh, laptop on this one and not the usual ATV equipment. They don't fly ATV anymore, but the, I believe Kirk Sharmandine was saying during the pre-launch press conference that they're not going to use that particular instrument anymore because in order to power the thing up, you have to run cables through several modules. And in the event that there is a problem on board station and you need to seal off modules, you have this cable running through several modules and you can't seal the modules off. So running this uh, using the station's laptop is a big boon, and Shell uh, Lindgren will be at the controls. He'll be the prime supporter for this one with uh, Scott Kelly being his backup. They're, the astronauts are sure as heck looking forward to this particular Cygnus vehicle, not only for the science and the logistics, which are really going to be helpful. This is probably the most stuffed vehicle that has ever visited the International Space Station because, again, of the several problems we've had with the supply pipeline uh, this year. As you know, we've, we've covered most of that. But because of those problems, it's put the ISS kind of behind the eight ball. So this is going to be a welcome sight when Cygnus does a tally-ho on the, on the station, delivering not only science, but a lot of logistic supplies, and, from what I understand, some Christmas presents on board. So, yep, Santa's sleigh is, is contained on board Cygnus, too. Uh, we have a little bit of an explanation here, too, on what the logistics issues are on board the International Space Station. And that was done, I believe, by uh, Space Station Program Manager Kirk Charmody. And so we'll go ahead and have him explain, first off, the traffic that's surrounding this thing and why it was so critical to get Cygnus off when we did. On the 11th of December, we have uh, 43 Soyuz landing. On the 15th of December, we have 45 Soyuz launch and docking. On the 18th of December, 60 Progress is uh, returning, uh, undocking and returning. On the 21st of December, 
We have 62 Progress, which is launching, and it actually docks uh, a couple days later on the 23rd. And then mercifully, we have a beta cutout, which all uh, all vehicle traffic stops. So I don't really know how we manage that, but from the December 21st or 24th through uh, January 2nd, uh, you won't be seeing any uh, any visiting vehicle traffic or uh, or spacewalks. Uh, it'll be a, a time really to catch our breath. So that kind of puts perspective uh, on why getting this vehicle off when we did was really really important. We've got a lot of traffic coming up to the ISS, the, the Russian progress. We've got a, a crew exchange coming up, so it's going to be a, an interesting time there. Yeah, they're uh, looking forward to that break at the end of December and January where there are no vehicles. Yeah, because of all the beta angles. That you can't do it. So it's like, ah, finally, we get a rest. To give you an idea, too, about what's going on with the ISS from a consumable standpoint, Again, Kirk Charmadine was saying that, uh, oh, we were getting point, we're getting kind of close to the point of no return in some areas, so I'm going to go ahead and have him explain what's going on there. We had five uh, cargo supply chains uh, a little over a year ago, and uh, four of those supply chains were disrupted this year. So ATV, we flew the last ATV, and it's gone. We aren't flying any more ATVs. We had the orbital accident. We had a, a Dragon, a SpaceX Dragon accident. We had the Progress accident. So quite a disruption in our supply chain. We did have the consumables that, that people traditionally think about, food, water, um, toilet supplies, all those things that are required. Um, uh, we, we had more. I could give you an exact date of where they are, but, but the thing I really wanted to convey is that, that it's more than just those things. They're, they're, we've consumed some spares, so we put spares, we call them you know, critical on-orbit spares for, for our water processor, for our solar arrays, all, all these things, and we've consumed those things. So it's not a, there's not a crisp answer. At, at this date, we'll be back to where we were. During this time period, what we have done is the, the opportunities we have had, we've we put those most critical, time-critical resupplies on board. So the, the, the food and, and those kinds of things we put on. But we've been consuming some of our critical spares. So we, we are below where we would like to be relative to some of our on-orbit uh, hardware spares. Um, we've also prioritized our science at a much higher level. So f food and science have been our, uh, you know, our, our number one priorities and, and, the, and been consuming these spares. So uh, I can find some data for you, but, but I'll tell you it's not going to be a really crisp answer. I expect that by the end of this uh, of next calendar year, a year from now if we were talking and things go according to plan, we'll be back in a, in a, in a very robust configuration. But, uh, but it'll be hard to give you a, a crisper answer than that. Yeah, so you can see we're kind of, you know, we're okay now, but come February, we're reaching kind of a red line here, and then I think April really is the point of no return for consumables. At that point, you're out of food and all that. I'm sure progress could still probably deliver some stuff up there, but you're really, I don't know, you're kind of towing the line there. So getting Cygnus off was super critical to continuing safe and, and comfortable ISS operations. Yeah, there seemed to be a bit of a shock there when basically they're like, you know, it, we hit the red line in February and we pretty much have no food in April. I mean, obviously there's plenty of resupply missions scheduled in between then, but I at least was very surprised, you know, because when I spoke to um, Mike Suffragini, who was the head of the ISS program back in middle of the summer after the failures, they were saying, oh yeah, we got plenty of supplies, we're not going to run out for at least six months or anything, and... Now when they're like, okay, we're going to hit the red line of food in less than two, in about two months, you realize how important these resupply missions actually are. 
Yeah, and then having having basically, I, I believe we had five vehicles at the beginning of the year that were capable of flying to the International Space Station and delivering logistics and science. We've lost ATV, that they're not going to do ATV anymore. And then we had, of course, the two mishaps, one over the summer with uh, the SpaceX CRS-7 mission and, of course, the spectacular failure out at Wallops last year. Again, this is a, an exciting return to, to flight mission, and it's good. It finally put the United States back on the map, if you will, being able to service its own space station. We can indeed send logistics and science and other supplies up to the International Space Station from U.S. soil again. And not only that, and I think this is getting kind of washed out somehow in some of the coverage, this also demonstrates the versatility of the system that Orbital APK has. Okay, fine, they ran into a huge buzzsaw uh, last April with Antares. Antares is on track for its return to flight sometime in May. There's going to be a hot fire test, I believe, sometime in the February, January, February timeframe for Antares for the new engines. But in the meantime, they've demonstrated that they can fly Cygnus on another vehicle other than the one that they have. They're going to do that again in March, and the door is still open. I'm, I have a funny feeling between United Launch Alliance and Orbital ATK for you know future joint operations should that need arise. So they've demonstrated that the system is extraordinarily flexible. It can fly on another booster other than, than Antares. So to me, that's a big feather in the cap for Orbital ATK and this system. And for some reason or other, that hasn't really been yelled from the from the mountaintops all that much. So again, hats off to the entire Orbital ATK launch team on this one. And, you know, go Cygnus. They're doing a pretty good job so far. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, they're getting their craft up and ready again. And we were talking to them, actually, and uh, their rocket would pretty much be ready in the end of March, early April is what they were figuring. But they said since they already have the other Atlas V coming up in March already, they basically yeah. said NASA didn't want two within two weeks. So they're holding off on that first launch aboard the Antares for that reason. Right, and OA-5, which is actually going to be the first flight out of Wobbs, that is going to be in May, followed by the one that's going to basically finish up the first CRS cargo, I guess, agreement. That will happen in October. So after October, any other follow-up missions, these are, are from like the CRS plus one contract, if you will, that they're going to continue to service. Right, and to clarify again, the mission sequence, and this bugged me a little bit, but it's just like shuttle. Uh, this was OA-4. <laughs> the next Atlas V mission is OA-6. And then after that, the first Antares Cygnus launch again is OA-5. So it goes 4, 6, 5. And apparently that's because the cargo was already designated, so they kept the numbers even though, you know, the vehicles changed. Yeah, Frank Culbertson basically said, yeah, that was my fault <laughs> you know, during, during the press conference, which I thought was kind of funny. True, but I do want to point that out. And again, this one was the Deke Slayton 2. We don't know the names of the others yet, but right, right. And he finally flew again. Right. And it, it was it was kind of a, you know, a, a kind of choked up moment when you, you finally realized that his namesake was back up there. It was kind of special. 
However, I want to get back to the real star of the Sigma story, and unfortunately it was the weather and the winds. And Mark, you had a very interesting discussion with some folks that were actually measuring the wind and some new methods of measuring the winds for launch. Mark, why don't you go ahead and talk a little bit about that? Well, here we go. Hope everybody has their beanie with the propeller on top ready. Go ahead and spin it up and uh, keep it going because this will take a few minutes, but I think it'll be worth it. Back on October 2nd of 2015, I met with two folks from the Kennedy Space Center Weather Office. I met with Lana Meyer. She's the KSC Doppler Radar Wind Profiler Lead, and John Callaher. He's the project manager for development of the system with the Vencor Interim Service Contract. They gave me an introduction to the Doppler Radar Wind Profiler, as I mentioned a few episodes ago. Now, here's the long, short story. Let's geek out on some weather and electronics and tell me you're not impressed. I don't think you will, but you can tell me if you want to. I'll listen. The NASA Kennedy Space Center Doppler Radar Wind Profiler, and I'll try and refer to it as a wind profiler just to keep it simple and short. It measures wind as a function of altitude every five minutes. It provides tracking of temporal variations of winds at altitudes from 5,903 feet to 63,863 feet. Data from this system is provided to the United States Air Force and to other customers such as the rocket launch service providers and also to the National Weather Service. Now, the wind profiler provides real-time data. It supports go, no-go decisions for launch by the customer. The customer is the one who decides whether they're going to launch or not. The system measures Doppler shift of a reflected radar signal. The shift is related to the velocity of the air and is measured every 150 meters from 5903 feet to 63863 feet. That results in 119 gated blocks of data for each scan. They repeat each scan three times, and then they shift that. I'll explain a little bit more about that later. There's two systems like this in the world. I expect there's more of other types made by other manufacturers, and of course I saw the one that's installed at Kennedy Space Center. So why have this complex system at KSC? Well, the alternative is the long-established science of releasing a weather balloon. At National Weather Service stations in the U.S., instrumented weather balloons are routinely released twice a day. The balloons take about an hour to reach the troposphere, and they provide data to the ground station during their ascent. The balloon instrument package reports position via either GPS data, or from what I've gathered as a less common tracking method, they can use a precision ground radar to track the balloon and report its position. That data is sent to the ground station during ascent. It includes air temperature, relative humidity, barometric pressure. It may have other things, but I didn't go there to study weather balloons, and that's the basics of it. The balloon goes where the wind takes it, and it's often 20-plus kilometers and at times 60 or more kilometers away from the weather station release point. The wind profiler system at KSC is now in the process of testing and certification. It replaced a wind profiler system that was several generations older was installed back in the 80s. That prior system was replaced due to difficulty of maintenance and repair because of its age and the lack of parts support. 
Measurement of winds is a factor in go-no-go decisions during a rocket launch countdown. I learned that each rocket configuration has unique characteristics such as height, surface area, steerable nozzle capability that determine exactly what wind conditions are or are not acceptable for launch. Some non-government entities have already chosen the wind profiler as their primary asset for go-no-go decisions during a countdown. I was told that the NASA Space Launch System will require one weather balloon to be released along with use of the wind profiler data for their decision to launch. Other types of rockets may need four to six or more balloons to be released during countdown for the eventual go-no-go call during a launch readiness poll. The KSC wind profiler data is being evaluated by NASA Marshall Space Flight Center to determine a reference atmosphere for each type of launch vehicle. I'd say that's a good use of your tax dollars. The 1980s vintage KSC Doppler radar wind profiler was decommissioned with the antenna system and electronics being removed starting in March of 2014. The new system was installed at the same location, which is approximately half a mile east and slightly south of the north end of the shuttle landing facility runway 1533. The new system operated 24-7 from December of 2014 through June-July of 2015. They've seen some frequency interference and they're working on that problem and hope to complete certification of the system by the end of the year. Certification, this is important, means that the system meets the specifications and that the abilities and limitations are understood. Now, some key points from my visit on November 30th, which was just before the beginning of uh, the media countdown for OA4. This was when I got to see the equipment and meet some of the specialists that operate the system. The wind profiler has 640 antennas in an area covering five acres of ground. They're grouped in 20 sectors of 32 antennas each, making this a large phased array antenna. The design provides some redundancy over what the prior wind profiler system had, and it allows the wind profiler to continue operation even with failures that affect several antennas, sectors, or other subsystem components. A phased array antenna, even though it doesn't move, is pointed by changing the characteristics of the signal radiated. The phase of the transmit signal is varied to each of the 20 sectors of 32 antennas. The control of the transmit signal phase is what allows beam steering to point the array. Each beam is pointed 15 degrees off of zenith to each 45 degree point of the compass, so four beams. One beam points to the northeast at 45 degrees, another to the southeast at 135 degrees, another to the southwest at 225 degrees, and the final last one to the northwest at 315 degrees. Transmit beam is only one to two degrees wide, so think of the transmit signal as being like a narrow searchlight pointing up into the sky. Whether you're talking about sound, RF, radio frequency energy, or light, just remember this. All you're doing is directing energy very precisely in a specific direction, and then you're looking at the reflected energy that comes back. The Doppler radar wind profiler operates at a frequency of 49.25 megahertz, which is slightly less than the midpoint divided by two of the FM radio broadcast band. And for amateur radio operators, that's in the six meter band. Time for some hardware trivia. Each transmit amplifier has an RF output of 1,600 watts. Each transmit assembly has 10 of these transmit amplifiers, 59 fans that supply cooling airflow through the transmitter chassis. Sorry, I had to count them. 
I had a picture of it. Each transmitter assembly feeds one of the 20 sectors of 32 antennas. The combined RF transmit power is 320,000 watts at the building. RF power at the antenna array is 250,000 watts. The RF power difference being due to attenuation in the various components between each transmit amplifier and the sector of antennas. The length of each of the 20 heliacs or coaxial cables connecting the equipment in the building to the antenna system out in the field is the same length. This means it takes the same amount of time for each pulse from the 20 transmitters to reach the sector of each transmitter that it feeds. Cool system feature. The system operates using five power supplies with each one supporting four transmitters and thereby four sectors. A power supply malfunction would not take the entire system down, just four transmitters and the sectors that it supports. The system would still provide data, possibly with a reduction in maximum altitude of the winds measured. So how about safety? The highest voltage in the system is 48 volts. Big difference from the prior system, which had a high voltage power supply, Klystron, and other components where you had to make sure your people stayed safe. In this system, I would guess that it's similar in some respects to other electronics I've been around where you have to be concerned about the uh, technician affecting the system rather than it possibly injuring or killing a guy working on it. Let me give you a run through of this system and how it works. I'll try and paint you a picture, but I'll use words, of course. For this to make sense, pretend that we're all a single pulse of energy from one of the 20 transmitters. Ready in three, two, one, go. 16,000 watt pulse is sent from the transmitter, leaving the equipment passing through a lightning protection device and leaving the building for one of the 20 sectors of antennas. Our pulse reaches the sector, enters a distribution box where it is phase shifted, divided into 32 lower amplitude pulses, each of which is now headed to one of the 32 antennas in that sector. Finally, free at last, we're radiated into the sky at a 15-degree angle from the zenith and directed to one of the four quadrants like I described earlier. Surprise, it's now party time. Our little old pulse from one antenna has joined up with a pulse from 639 other antennas, and we're headed up to the troposphere. Hopefully now we won't run into an airplane, rain, clouds, a lightning bolt, or an alien spacecraft. That would result in less than perfect data, maybe a bad data block for that section of altitude. Now, what we're looking for is for the wind to shift our phase slightly. That's Doppler shift. And due to the reflection, we'll head back down to the antenna through the distribution box, coaxial feed cable into the building, and then into the electronics and the processor system where the software turns our little old phase shifted radar signal into wind data from, like I said before, 5,903 feet up to 65,863 feet. So that's what happens when it sends a pulse. Now, certification by NASA is expected soon, and following that, the Air Force will review their data to complete their own certification. Then the wind profiler will be available for all launches. The wind profiler has supported launches for the past year, but only on the request of the customer launch provider. The Air Force has not yet made calls regarding winds based on the wind profiler. Following certification, they will. Now, the three gentlemen that gave me my tour of the equipment and gave me some of this information that I've tried to, to share with you, 
Uh, one of the gentlemen was Tom Brower. He had prior experience with RF navigation systems, weather instrumentation, and other data acquisition systems at Cape Kennedy. He worked the transatlantic abort landing sites during the shuttle program. Another gentleman was Frank Walker. They joked that he was Luke's daddy, as in Luke Skywalker. I guess that'll date this program in a few years. And during the shuttle program, Frank worked instrumentation on the launch pads, including weather instrumentation. He's worked a lot of instrumentation, data acquisition type systems over the years. The third gentleman was Chris Taylor. He graduated college a year and a half ago, and he was assigned to work with Frank and by association with the wind profiler system. Here's what impressed me, in, in short, kind of to wind things up. System redundancy. They can lose a lot and still complete their mission. The equipment installation itself was really, really nice. I sort of joke about it that pretty counts when you're looking at equipment and how things are, are put in and how it's uh, configured. And this system, to my eye, is pretty. Value, it's a state-of-the-art Eastern Range asset serves launch providers as part of what KSC and Cape Canaveral Air Force Station offer as what I'm going to call a premier rocket launch facility. And, of course, the expertise of the team that's implementing this 21st century system, these guys are sharp. They really are sharp. And the people that I met at first, uh, Lana Meyer, the lead, I have to consider how much they had to take things down for me to understand it. I hope that I'm not overdoing it with details, but it, it, I just wanted to try and uh, explain enough to make sense of sending a pulse, having it Doppler phase shifted by the winds aloft, come back down, then it's processed, analyzed. I've got a few uh, screenshots of what the system data looks like and a picture of the uh, antenna field, and I'll try to make sure that those are available so you can look at them and maybe have a little bit of the wonder that I had when I saw this. Yeah, Mark, this is pretty exciting stuff. First of all, I love the explanation. I mean, I, I had my eyes closed, and I was picturing myself as this particle that you were talking about, and I went through the whole thing, and I'm like, my God, I can see my house from up here and all that. You know, they're just kind of joking in, in my head. But it was a wild ride you took us on, and that was a really, really ingenious way of describing what this whole system is capable of doing. Because uh, it was something that, you know, somebody who is not exactly the, the sharpest knife in the drawer here, like myself, could really, really understand. So, so that was a wonderful explanation. We had a discussion while we were both at the Kennedy Space Center a while back ago about, well, we, I was sort of joking about my birds. And uh, we were talking about the antenna array and so on and how birds would theoretically kind of perch on the array and what they leave behind, unfortunately, and what that could do and how they try to, unfortunately, have to go ahead and clean that up and deal with that. Could you kind of allude, is, is, does that affect the, the effectiveness of the system at all? I don't think it would. I think one advantage they've got is that there's 640 antennas the mast that they're mounted on is 10 feet high. So there's lots of things, even when you're in an open area with not much vegetation, there's still a lot of things that are higher that a bird might perch on to, to <laughs> keep a, an eye on what's around him. So I don't think they get a lot of um, uh, bird, nuisance bird type mm -hmm. activity. I didn't see any of the bird control or bird mitigation devices like we've seen in, on some of the uh, old-time shots of, of Pad 39A and 39B. So I really don't think they have to 
be too concerned with uh, with birds. So oh. they got better things to do than hang out on a bunch of low metal mass and <laughs> cross pieces. So and and again, the data that this array is able to collect, it's available to any any of the launch providers operating out of the Kennedy Space Center. It would be available to United Launch Alliance, it would be available to SpaceX, obviously it's going to be available to NASA and anybody else that wants to operate out of there, correct? Correct, and they've supported launches for the past year. Uh, when I was there October 2nd and talked to the two weather office folks in their office, uh, they had just come off of, of supporting the launch, which was just before dawn, so they had been at work watching the system operation, tweaking it, tuning it, and uh, and being there uh, for the whole night. And uh, it supported SpaceX launch um, earlier this year, and I forget what launches occurred when, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's ready ready for duty. They got a few things to to tweak on it to uh, eliminate some some frequency interference, and that gets into a whole lot of theory and tech that's beyond me. But just a little bit of tweaking to pulse characteristics, and and they'll be good to go, and they'll be operating twenty four seven. This data, I understand, is also available to the Weather Service office at Melbourne, and sometime in the future, and I don't have any plans uh, near term to do this, but sometime in the future, I want to talk to the weather office folks and get uh, a little bit of better understanding of what this does for them, just as a weather monitoring and forecasting asset. Indeed. I want to go ahead and thank uh, Mr. George Diller from NASA Public Affairs for kind of taking me out there and, and nurse, nursemaiding me through this and, and, uh, and allowing me to go ahead and see this, because this is just fascinating, Mark. Thanks so much for bringing this forward. Thank you, Gene, for mentioning George Diller. On the way back to the uh, press site on Monday, I said, you know, George, it occurs to me this is probably a pretty busy time for you, what with OA4 and the press descending on you tomorrow for L-2. And he said, yeah. And I said, of course, if there wasn't a launch right now, the system wouldn't be operating and I wouldn't get to see it. <laughs> so kind of a, a necessary evil. I really appreciate him uh, setting this up. It's taken us uh, a couple of months because I didn't want to make any any demands. I really wanted to try and slip in when I wasn't going to be a distraction or intrusion for them. And things just worked out really, really good. I'm, I'm thankful for NASA accommodating us. I would guess that we're probably the first news reporting operation in a long time that's really looked at this. At least I've never heard of any before. All I've seen is a couple of press releases the last three or four years, and I'm glad to add a little bit of understanding to it. Indeed. Uh, Mark, again, thanks. This, this was fascinating. And uh, again, this is just another asset that's going to keep our vehicles safe as they ascend and uh, go into the stars. So, Mark, thanks a whole bunch for bringing this over to us. Yeah, definitely. And again, like you were saying, there are not many organizations that go out and cover this, and yet it's really interesting. <laughs> you know, it's the stuff that you don't realize how important and cool it is until you get a launch that's delayed, you know, three, four days because of the wind and the weather and how that profiler helps. So, definitely thank you. Now, we had so much audio that we got, and we covered so many different things. Uh, we're going to have to try and get some of it into another show. We were given tours of what they're modifying at uh, Slick 41, where the Atlas launched from for the Boeing Starliner. We got to go into the hangar 
where they're building Starliner, which is one of the shuttle processing facilities. We got to go into one of the testing facilities. Uh, we got to see the SpaceX pad, and I think we want to briefly touch on a few of those before we call it quits on some of our time at the Kennedy Space Center. Which do we want to address first, Gene? I had some time with Orbital ATK's Frank DeMauro. Frank is literally calling the shots for this particular flight. He, he played a, a pivotal role in the launch decision just yesterday. And uh, Frank DeMauro is uh, Vice President of uh, Human Spaceflight Operations for Orbital ATK, and I had the distinct honor of uh, having a few minutes with him. So uh, why don't we go ahead and talk a little bit with Frank now. Well, I saw you were from Rutgers, or you yeah. graduated from Rutgers, uh, New, New Brunswick, That's I right. think it was. Okay. Um, I'm at a Keene University. I apologize. <laughs> uh, you said in your oral history that I read that you were extraordinarily proud of that. What did you get from Rutgers, that experience over there that helped you prepare for all this today? Well, you know, Rutgers is a, a large university, but it's a, it's a great university. I really enjoyed uh, being at the engineering school. I've ma I made lifelong friends there. But it was it was the curriculum and sort of the training uh, that I took away from Rutgers that uh, I think really helped me in my career. It's obviously a very very strenuous curriculum uh, as an engineering major, uh, especially in the aerospace and mechanical side. Um, and so uh, it's I think when I look back at how hard I worked in school and to be able to graduate from there, and I, I, I did very well there. Uh, I think that was a big part of me being able to move into the workforce pretty effectively from, from early on. Uh, I'm a proud New Jerseyan, uh, so to be able to uh, graduate from the State University of New Jersey is, is very special to me. Um, uh, you know, I've gone back there a few times. I like to go to see the football games as much as I can. Great. Uh, but I'm, 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 just, I'm proud of my state. I'm proud of my university, and I, uh, it's, it's a place I, I think of very fondly. That, that, that's, that's grand to hear. Uh, with the uh, the COTS program, going going into that now, uh, you said the relationship with NASA was kind of unique. It was, there was no, you know, Moses down from the stone tablets type relationship there. It was always, you know, kind of a collaboration and so on and so forth. Um, nothing, you know, a lot of attitudes were different. Uh, that kind of you said that kind of relationship was key and was very very important. Can you discuss? how important that was to have that kind of collaborative effort with NASA and also what could actually a business learn from that kind of collaboration outside of the aerospace industry say right so I think um, one of the one of the best things that was that was done as part of that whole process by NASA was to say I've got commercial companies who know how to do this orbital ATK orbital sciences at the time uh, knows how to build spacecraft. Uh, it, there's a lot of new new aspects of this program. Rendezvousing in space with uh, a human-occupied vehicle, it's a big deal. But we, we know how to design things, we know how to build things, we know how to test things. And so NASA said, we want you to do what you do best because that's why we selected you in this whole process. At the same time, Orbital ATK learned a lot from NASA in terms of what's important about the safety aspects. Uh, what is the safety process? What should be included in your analysis uh, of your design? What should be included in your engineering processes to help foster that safety? Mm -hmm. And so together, and I, I really stress the point it was a joint effort, while there certainly is a requirements document you have to meet, uh, it's something that NASA gives you and says, okay, how will you go about meeting this? We're not going to tell you how to do it. 
we know what we want in terms of the the outcome. We want something that's going to rendezvous, berth with the space station, do it safely, uh, do it with uh, mission success uh, to enable us to support the crew with, with uh, supplies and science. That's that's the goal we need. Right. And so, okay, orbital ATK, go tell us how you're going to do that. Uh, and so it it was incumbent on us to figure out what the spacecraft was going to look like. Uh, we had already kicked off the Antares development prior to winning the consummation, um, but Cygnus we had not. So we, we designed Cygnus itself, Cygnus proper, from scratch. But given our long history of developing spacecraft, the electronics have a lot of heritage in our previous spacecraft. Um, the, our, the way we analyze and design our structures have a lot of heritage. At the time, uh, you know, we, we were buying ATK components. We had, we had a long history uh, with ATK of building components for us for many satellites that we built. And so that relationship existed. And so uh, it was, a. I think the, the collaboration was we, they, they gave us the end game. We figured out what we wanted it to look like and the best way we thought to get it there. NASA came in and said, okay, but there's are the things you need to consider from a safety point of view. Uh, working within NASA and their engineering communities, how that how that all works. Um, it, it was it was it's really a success story. It was made to bring commercial companies to be able to do the work that NASA had been slated to do, and and that's what's happening now. The mishap over at Wallops, okay, that's in the rearview mirror, and and that's it's behind us, and we're here you know, almost a little bit more than a year later. You know, with Cygnus out there on a launch pad. I thought the way the company, and this is my a personal opinion, I thought the way the company handled that was, was kind of masterful um, from, all, from not only from a business relationship standpoint, but also from a public affairs standpoint. Um, was there sort of in a case and emergency break glass plan that was already standing by? Because uh, if I recall, uh, uh, President uh, David Thompson was on the phone almost the day after burning up the lines trying to get a, a new uh, launch service provider to make sure that the uh, at least the cargo part of this was was in the uh, in the pipeline could stay in the pipeline while uh, you know Antares was was sort of looking at its wounds again was there kind of like a case of emergency break glass type plan or no it's hard, it's hard to do that because the the range of issues you could encounter is so broad that you essentially need a a break glass plan for just about everything, and that's that's really hard to manage. I think more importantly, uh, to your to the point you made, we jumped on this very quickly. You know, we 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 had the failure. You have to figure out what, what's going on. Antares jumped right on that, and um, we came together the next day. That's not an exaggeration. The next day to say, okay, here's here's what the return to flight plan has to do. It has to deliver the cargo that we were required to deliver. And it has to do it in the time frame that we, we said we would do it in. And so those, those were the basic requirements of it. And from there, it was, okay, what, what do we need to do that? Well, we, we, we were, you know, pretty, we thought it was clear, okay, it looks like an engine issue, um, didn't know what, but so we're going to go off and we're going to re refit uh, Antares with new engines. But in the meantime, that's going to take some time. We want to get Cygnus flying as soon as we can. And so we're going to go off and get a third-party launch vehicle. Uh, and, and get Cygnus up in orbit and to the station as quickly as we can. And so ULA, we, we got ULA on board. Uh, they were very responsive to our initial requests of what can you do, when can you do it. 
our team jumped on with their team to figure out, okay, we knew Cygnus had compatibility with multiple launch vehicles, but the devil's in the details. Right. And we started working that even before the contract was signed. Is, are the interfaces a problem? Are the loads going to be a problem? Um, so, and then we said, okay, at the end of this process, we're going to have a, an Atlas V with a lot of capability, and we're going to have an Antares with more capability. So we really need to figure out how we can get more cargo into the Cygnus spacecraft to take advantage of that. And so we worked with our partner, Talisalina Space in Italy, uh, to figure that out. We did. And so when we originally would plan on this enhanced Cygnus, which was always planned to fly on this mission, it wasn't an out, out, uh, offshoot of the failure, uh, that was originally planned for 2,700 kilograms. But we figured out, well, we, we can do more. And so that, by working with Talus, we figured out how to pack more. And so we can do 3,500 on the on the Atlas mission, and then we can do 3,200 on Antares, um, which is limited by the thrust capability. But it's still more than we originally planned. Right. And so all of that came together relatively quickly, led by Dave Thompson, the highest level of the company. He chaired this return to flight uh, plan, so to speak, of uh, the board, and uh, worked it with NASA. They were receptive to our plan. Of course, the, again, we'll work through the details with them. But we had ULA on contract um, in November, uh, kicked it off, and, you know, essentially uh, less than 12 months from the actual kickoff meeting, which was in December, here we are, ready to fly. How's the vibe back in the back in the office over in Dallas? Are you guys up and, and just can't wait for the, to that... Uh just can't wait for 5:55 tonight or what? Where we are, we are so anxious. Not, not. Uh, someone asked me. Oh, someone else asked me. Are, are, you, are you nervous? No, we're very confident. The spacecraft's ready. Launch vehicle's ready. Um, you know, hoping for for good weather. Um, but uh, I would say we're we're excited and anxious. We want to get Cygnus flying again. We want to get that cargo back to uh, cargo deliveries back on a, on a good cadence with uh, uh, to the ISS to support the crew members. Uh, our team has been focused from day one of this program, certainly day one of our return to flight uh, plan development, that the, the real customers here are the crew members of the ISS. And we remind our team of that, not that they need reminding, but we keep them reminded. Those are the folks we're really working for. And while our customer is certainly counting on us and our company is certainly counting on us, nobody's counting on us more than those crew members. So the team is, is, is ready to, to do their job. Once Cygnus gets let go of the, uh, of the rocket, We'll be ready to fly it up to the ISS. Grand. What do you see for the future uh, for Cygnus and for the Antares combination? To me, the, the Cygnus seemed to be all, always a really, really flexible platform. Uh, because of its destructive nature, you can still do a lot of uh, interesting experiments with fire suppression and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, plus, there are other things you can do with Cygnus. I always saw that thing attached to Orion as a, as a pressurized vehicle for... Uh, uh, for swinging around the moon with or something. Is that on the table? Or are you guys looking at expanded ways to use Cygnus at this point in time? Absolutely. We, we think Cygnus has all the building blocks to be able to be used for, for multiple things beyond cargo delivery. Of course, right now, that's our focus. NASA needs us to deliver the cargo. But in terms of looking to the future, using Cygnus as a test platform, for various technology demonstrations, using Cygnus as part of the exploration uh, plan for NASA, uh, using Cygnus out in, let's say, cislunar space as a logistics module to bring cargo, like we do now, uh, to be developed as a habitation 
system for crew members to either live in or work in. Um, uh, to be used, uh, you know, like you, you mentioned, the combustion experiment, Sapphire will fly on our next mission, on OA-6, uh, where we're going to utilize Cygnus's capability of leaving the station and uh, flying around for however long it takes uh, to run an experiment. Uh, on the next mission, we also plan to fly an external CubeSat deployer. Uh, so we'll be doing that for NASA uh, in their relationship with NanoRacks. So we, so there are, there are uh, the building blocks, the architecture, uh, the basic design approach of Cygnus is, is is very flexible, and so we think that's that's the the place to start. There'll be modifications, upgrades for those specific missions, uh, and and we're in the process of, of looking at those now. Uh, but we think Cygnus as a, a vehicle to support NASA's future, as a, as in addition to its present. Uh, is absolutely uh, absolutely on the table. So I want to go ahead and thank Frank for taking some time out from his uh, schedule. This was pretty much, I believe, it was probably L minus one, and I'm sure he had a you know a dozen things he'd rather be doing than talking to a bunch of reporters. But it was uh, just about three of us, and I was lucky enough to have about uh, maybe 15 minutes with him uh, myself and. Again, uh, Grand Gentleman, you know, he's kind of an example of what the Orbital ATK team was all about uh, during our visit. Just a lot of uh, what I will call quiet competence in that team. So again, uh, Mr. Morrow, thanks. And uh, as they say, in any story, there's always a Jersey angle. So uh, go Garden State, even though Sawyer, you're not here anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. You could take the boy out of Jersey. Ah, yeah. Jersey out of the boy, so... I totally get it. This is true. But, uh, yeah, I have to say, Orbital ATK was extremely accommodating. They were they were really great. Uh, all the companies we talked to, Boeing, they were great about getting us access, ULA, uh, NASA people. And I know I'm going to get some flack from this. I know oh. we're all going to get some letters from this, but there was one company that was less than kind to the media, and that's the company that wouldn't even send out their own representative to talk to us as they stuck us in a field. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and we were standing out in the weeds getting bit by mosquitoes. Yes. And, and getting those that... things sticking to our pants and our shoes, yes. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. I thought that was kind of highlighted the morning. <laughs> yeah, not standing underneath an active construction site where a rocket would be standing less than 24 hours later or inside a former... Uh, orbiter processing facility now active build site. No, no just being in the grass outside the fence of Path Thirty Nine A, I think was the highlight. Well, we got good information, you know. Oh, great information from the SpaceX spokesperson. Oh, oh wait. <laughs> no, 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 no. That was uh, uh, commercial crew. Uh, yeah, NASA commercial crew office. Yeah, and hmm. uh, I, I think SpaceX wasn't too happy with something they said either about. Um, about a future, their next mission, and where the booster would be landing back again. I think they accidentally let it slip that it was going to be landing back at the launch pad. Uh, I think it was 14. And then when contacted, SpaceX would not comment on it. Something like that, Sawyer. Yeah. Yeah, that's the way it pretty much went. <laughs> Yeah, so um, in case you can't tell, the SpaceX media presence was non-existent, and um, 
it was a bit underwhelming, especially considering how open and welcoming Orbital ATK and Boeing and all of the other companies that were there were to us. And I know we're going to catch some flack, like I said, for this. People are going to, you know, uh, support their favorite company, and that's totally okay. But from a media perspective, I'm more than okay putting it out there that um, it was less than stellar, dare I say. Yeah, to set the stage a little bit, Sawyer, I think you, you, I think you and Mark really put it in proper perspective. We were on a future show. You're going to hear more about the changes that are going on at uh, Launch Complex 41, and the changes that have occurred at the former Orbiter Processing Facility Number Three. Now has been totally transformed to fabricate the CST 100 Starliner. But here, and, and of course, the folks at NASA testing the umbilicals for the Space Launch System and for the new mobile tower, again, we got right into the nitty-gritty of that, and, and that's going to be a future show, and I can't wait to get all of that, that data out to you. But then we came out to, to what really is a, a national treasure. That was launch pad 39A, where the Apollo missions left, where uh, most of the shuttle has occurred, and, of course, where Atlantis reached for the sky for the last time. And instead of getting access to the launch pad, we were kind of off to the side outside the fencing, getting eaten alive. And instead of having both a NASA representative and a SpaceX corporate representative, we just simply had uh, a NASA representative from the commercial crew program. Carol Scott, who was just, you know, she was more than adequate delivering information, but she let something out of the bag uh, that, um, well, I, I, SpaceX was trying to pull back on later. And, well, well, let's play the clip. So some very exciting news that I just got. Um, I was just talking to John Murtor before you guys came up here. And um, their plan is on their next launch, you know how they want to slide the first stage back, right? And their plan is to try to land it out here on the um, cape side over here. And that first stage, um, if they successfully get it back, is going to be the test article here. And it will go back into the hangar where they'll do a little refurbishment. And they will actually, you know, put it onto the transport erector. They'll actually go and roll it out to the pad and do some um, uh, fluid checks, electrical checks. And it'll be the test article to go and, um, you know, try to do your lo propellant loadings and your electrical, nice electrical checks. Um, against that article there and so uh, for me that's really really exciting because um, that's going to be some big tests that are coming up so um, we want to see that that would be pretty cool so that went live and sawyer you could probably take it from here as far as how that all snowballed and and what the effect of that was <laughs> Yeah, needless to say, people were extremely surprised at the fact that, hey, they're going to be landing, instead of on a barge out in the ocean, their next one back at the launch pad. The reason that they rented out another launch pad is so they could land the first stage back. I believe it's um, Launch Complex 14 at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. I could probably be wrong on that, but that was the last number I remember. And when contacting SpaceX about it, they would not comment. A day or two later, the Air Force said, yes, SpaceX will be attempting it pending FAA clearance. And only then did SpaceX finally acknowledge what we had all already known. And needless to say, SpaceX was a little mad at the NASA commercial program for letting that information slip. But if they were there to talk about it, they could have controlled it a bit better. Just 
throwing it out there. But um, I must say, the perspective of the media of SpaceX, from the people that we've spoken to, who we will not name names, so they don't get involved in this, but we spoke to a whole bunch of people, and there was a relative consensus to the people we spoke to about their opinions of SpaceX. And even one member of the press made it kind of known. Right, Gene? Yeah. Well, we were in the press pool. This was at that event. Carol Scott was saying if we ever had the opportunity to get up on the platform and somebody had this, you know, hot moment uh, like that was was going to happen. And there was some you know, giggling about that. Uh, you'll probably hear all of that during our visit there when we go ahead and play that in its entirety. Sawyer, you and I kind of had a little bit of a powwow as to whether or not to leave that in there. But we kind of felt we should because we, we didn't want to cheat our listeners in any way, shape, or form. We're not trying to control the message. We're trying to go ahead and show you exactly what happened and not trying to, you know, stilt it either way. I'm sure we're going to get accused of that in, in this episode. But, again, this is just part and parcel of how and how not to go ahead and do public affairs. SpaceX is a private company. They can run their organization however they want. I'm throwing that out there in their defense. However, by the same token, if you want to get your message out and you want it to go ahead and permeate through to the public, you might want to go ahead and uh, I know it's a pain in the butt game to play sometimes, but it's a game that you got to play. And it seems like the other uh, launch service providers, maybe the exception of Blue Origin, who is just about as quiet and kind of secretive as SpaceX is at times, they just don't say anything. Whereas SpaceX likes to be loud and proud, Blue Origin just flies under the radar and, and just kind of gets the job done. And when, when they have something to celebrate, they'll yell it from the rooftops. And when they don't, they don't. SpaceX, unfortunately, wants the limelight. But if you want the limelight, you're going to have to deal with the press, too. And it, you just can't have it both ways. Essentially, they want to have their cake and eat it, too. And, and, and that's just, just an impossibility. When it comes to the launch pad thing, I think what happened was, if you recall, there was that big you know, Twitter hullabaloo out there between Bezos and Musk, if you will, after Blue Origin successfully stuck their landing out, I believe it's in, in uh, Sawyer, correct me, out at their testing facility. I, I forget where it is. And um, so I think that prompted the decision to try to stick the landing at Launchpad 14 rather than out in the ocean in the barge again. So, again, not, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, we don't even know when that launch really is going to be. We, we think it's going to be sometime in January. I think it's, they first want to go ahead and and get a set of CubeSats set for an Orbcom mission that's going to be flying. I think that's going to be sort of a test, and I think maybe that might be the stick-the-landing attempt. I'm not sure. But it, it's it's tough to read the tea leaves with SpaceX because they're sort of like what Winston Churchill said of Russia. I forget what the exact quote is, but, you know, it's something like, you know, an enigma wrapped around inside a blanket inside a black box or something like that. I'm, I'm, I'm misquoting it, so look it up. That's the gist of how SpaceX has been kind of treating the media kind of like a mushroom, if you will. Yeah, this definitely demonstrated some things about SpaceX. But again, like you said, they're a private company. They can do whatever they so choose. They can control their message however they so choose. And I can guarantee the public is still going to love them regardless. It's just us as the media who are experiencing things that people in the public may not know. 
Yeah, I mean, I made a comment while we were riding past 39A, and Sawyer, you were with me at the time, and I was talking to just, you know, we were, we were talking to our fellows, and uh, uh, I, I said something to the effect, every time now I, I, I roll by 39A, I want to hear the Imperial March from Star Wars, because it just doesn't seem like the, you know, the place from history that it is now. And, you know, I mean, grant you, instead of rusting away, it is being used, which is a good thing. But it's just, I don't know, it's just the way that whole thing is being played out. We, we did also learn on that tour, too, Sawyer, that some of the changes that are going to happen, and rather rapidly, too, the old shuttle remote service structure that's still there at 39A, that is going to be removed along with the lightning mast on the fixed service structure. The fixed service structure itself will stay but I think, too, they had mentioned that they are going to put in a new uh, lightning uh, mast configuration. It will be a Y configuration rather than the four-point configuration that some launch pads use. And there was, there was some folks in the media just sort of aghast, God, the remote service structure is being removed. So here, I kind of think you and I were the only ones that were like, yeah, and... <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. I mean, everyone was like, you're going to rem- there are multiple questions about it. And I mean, yeah, I, they don't need it anymore. It's just going to be in the way. Then you have to deal with rust. And then with rust comes FOD or foreign object debris that could hit the rocket. It's more of a pain than it is a help, to be perfectly honest. And, you know, they don't need it anymore. So the parts are going to go away into storage and then they're going to decide whether to reuse pieces of it or to donate it to museums or whatever. Yeah, my first thought was, gee, wouldn't that look really cool in the California Science Museum if they went ahead and put Endeavor, like, standing up like they planned to and having that remote service structure kind of pull away and and kind of reveal the orbiter as you're standing there, sort of a la, you know, sort of like what Delaware North did with Atlantis and, and that impressive display that they put together for that and that impressive show in the beginning. That would be that would be kind of something to see, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. I don't think it would move, but just to see it there would be really cool. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, yeah, move it. You know, kind of cover the orbiter and just, you know, then, you know, kind of pull it away and voila. I mean, I'm dreaming, but, you know, I mean, that would cost, you know, about a jillion dollars and nobody's got that kind of money. Um, but it, it would still be kind of cool. You know, it, it's a dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and to be perfectly honest, the, the rotating service structure removal didn't bother me. Oddly enough, one thing that kind of bothered me wasn't the, you know, SpaceX building that was on the crawler way. It wasn't any of that kind of stuff. The one thing that I don't know why it just bugged me was, why is there a SpaceX logo on the water tower now? I just yeah. kind of feel like that's adding insult to injury. And again, people can totally disagree with me, but that's just, the one thing that randomly bugged me. Yeah, it wasn't just you. It was just about every person on that bus that we were coming back from. I mean, you know, that was sort of, we totally get the SpaceX logo completely emblazoned on that horizontal facility that they have right there in the in the tracks, which was kind of funny in and of itself, having that building right there, because if, sorry, if you remember, that building is built right where, uh, the mobile launcher would go ahead and, and kind of bring the vehicle up to the platform, right? Now, if I recall exactly in, in the lease, SpaceX said, told NASA, oh, you can use this facility too whenever you want. Well, how is NASA going to use the facility when you've already built your hangar, if you will, 
right in the tracks where the vehicle assembly building would have to go ahead and bring the rocket from. <laughs> so, you know, I don't see how NASA is going to be able to, to use 39A anymore, period, with that building there. Now, grant you that building's only been there a year, according to uh, what we learned over at Kennedy Space Center. They also do have a strongback sitting there. That's the launch facility that they use for Falcon 9. So apparently, the facility is being configured not only for Falcon Heavy, but it's also being configured for Falcon 9. So you're going to be able to launch both Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy from that same platform. It will be very interesting to see how that is going to work out, but apparently 39A is now a multi-vehicle use launch pad. And once they get things going, I'm sure they'll be launching uh, the Crew Dragon from that facility. So uh, it will be kind of neat to see humans reaching for space again from that historic launch pad. But Sawyer, yeah, the, the having the logo on the water tower and on that large hangar emblazoned over there, that, you know, on the launch tower, yeah, that was a, I thought it was a bit much. I mean, that is still a national historic site. And in some ways, I think it should have been treated as such. But, you know, again, it is what it is. Uh, it's their lease. They don't own it. They're leasing it from us. But, yeah, I think maybe putting, I, I guess, you know, you and I sort of were kind of students of history in that respect. And maybe... We should. They should have left well enough alone with the tower. Maybe just put the American flag up there, or, or something along those lines. Or leave it unpainted. But yeah, I mean, the building I don't care about. That actually, I thought it kind of looked really cool. But um, yeah, I did too. Actually, it's just that I don't know why the water tower just irked me for some reason. Again, maybe because it is that historical site, and maybe because I am, you know, one of those old souls, and I know other people are going to go, oh, grow up or get over it, kind of like we were with the RSS, you know, out with the old and with the new, and yeah, everyone's entitled to their opinion, but that's just how I felt about it. And if you do want to share your opinion with us, uh, you know you can always do that. Email mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com, Twitter at TalkingSpace, Facebook.com slash TalkingSpace, and we also have a Google Plus page too, so... Feel free to post your opinion on any of those platforms, and uh, we'll read it. We will definitely read it. Oh, boy, and I'm sure we're going to get it. <laughs> uh, I would expect so, and that's totally okay. Oh, yeah, me and, me and the several mosquito bites that I'm looking at on my wrist right now. I still got some on my hand, too, so. Anyway, but we have so much more information that we could fill in. We're going to hold off on that. We've got some great audio coming up in a special episode that will be out soon. But in the meantime, I believe we have one more regular episode left for this year. It's going to be a year wrap-up with some more special stories thrown in there as well. But that's going to do it for us for pretty much news episodes, for regular news episodes for the year of 2015. And it'll certainly wrap up this OA4 special episode. So I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Always, and Sawyer, it was, a, it was an honor to rub shoulders again with you and Mark. It's very, very rare these days that we finally get, get out there in the field together. And uh, it was both an honor and a privilege to watch you guys work and, and to see how hard you guys work out there in the field and try to get stories for our listeners so uh, uh, again it was a, a both an honor and a privilege to break bread with you for a few days so uh, thanks a whole bunch it was an honor to work with you as well and thank you as well for joining us mark raderman 
and I'll uh, join in on the kudos. Uh, gentlemen, thank you. In some respects, I wish I could do the things that you do, but I know by the same token, we all wish, and I'm glad to uh, to be a part of the team and just shows you what you can accomplish as a team. Oh, yeah. And it's the saying, teamwork makes the dream work, and that's certainly true because it's, I think, a dream in some instances for us to be able to go out and cover all these stories for you guys, and we're glad you, the listeners, enjoy it. So hopefully you do at least, and uh, thank you for listening. Again, like we said, we're going to have one more episode, at least one more episode coming out for the year 2015 and for the seventh season of Talking Space. We hope you'll listen to that one, and we hope you'll join us again soon. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. And go sickness.